Now let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 13. We are studying the life of Abraham. This is our fourth study. So if you're new to Calvary or, uh, you know, you haven't been around for the last few weeks, you're getting in kind of on the ground floor of our studies. The others will be online in text and uh, audio and video format. We're in Genesis 13. We're looking at verses 1 through 18. That's our text. The topic we'll find there. Given his choice of grazing land, Lot chose the lush, fertile plains of Jordan. The title of our message, The Plains, The Plains. Let's have a word of prayer. I don't know if I can pray now. Anyway, let's, let's, let's try that. Father, thank you so much for our morning. What a joy to have your word spread before us like a spiritual feast for our hearts and minds and souls. Feed us, fill us, so that we can be used of you in the world where you've placed us. We thank you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen. A new monk arrived at the monastery. He was assigned to help the other monks copying the old texts by hand. He noticed, however, that they were making copies of copies, not from the original book. The new monk went to the head monk to ask him about this. He pointed out that if there was an error in the very first copy, that error would be continued in all the other copies. Well, the head monk said, we've been copying from copies for centuries, but obviously you make a good point, son. So he went down into the cellar with one of the copies to check it against the original. Hours later, no one had seen him. One of the monks went downstairs to look for him. He heard a sobbing coming from the back of the cellar. He found the old monk leaning over one of the original books, crying. He asked him what was wrong. And the old monk, through his sobs, said, The the word is celebrate. I don't get it. But anyway... Monks represent to us a sort of ultimate separation from the world. Take a minute and explain it to your neighbor while I... Okay, thanks. Monks represent to us a sort of ultimate separation from the world in order to walk with God. I think, however, monks give separation from the world a bad name. They make separation from the world seem as though it is something to be endured rather than something that can be enjoyed. While no one here, I would say, thinks that a believer must become a monk, we might nevertheless have the attitude that separation from the world is something that is to be endured rather than enjoyed. In our text this morning, Abraham is going to example what it means to live separated from the world. Lot is going to provide sort of an opposite example. The key to enjoying separation is going to be very simple. It has to do with who you allow to make your choices in life. If you let God choose, you'll enjoy living separated from the world. If you let you choose, you won't. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, let God choose for you. And separation from the world will be enrapturing. Number two, let you choose for you and separation from the world will become elusive. Let's take a look first of all at Abraham in verses 1 through 9 and then we'll skip to verses 14 through 18. Now, the doctrine of 
the biblical doctrine of separation, it's a big, big topic that we could spend a lot of time on. We often summarize the Bible's teaching by saying we are to be in the world, but not of the world. And I, I like that. It, it really is a concise way of describing what it means to be separated. Now, there are numerous verses that encourage separation. None is more concise than 1 John chapter 2, verses 15, 16, and 17, where you read, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. And so that's all great, but how do we actually put separation into practice? Do we simply make a list of things to separate from? If you do uh, a search on uh, the Internet for the biblical doctrine of separation, you'll find tons of articles that immediately, I say, deteriorate into lists of don'ts. Uh, The things that the favorite one I found is, you know, everybody likes to quote that, you know, people say there's such a thing as Christian rock. As if, you know, that that's like from the devil. Larry Norman years ago answered that. He said, why should the devil have all the good music? You know, so uh, I mean, but so people, they say, want to talk about separation and they immediately make a list. They say, this is biblical separation. These are the things you don't do. And that makes you separate from the world. Is that real biblical separation? Is separation removing the R from celebrate to remain celibate? Is that what it's all about? Well, I think we should learn to think inwardly, not outwardly. Separation from the world is a matter of the heart. First, it certainly affects your outward behavior, but it's a matter of the heart. Abraham is our example. In these verses, he's going to make a clean separation from the world, but he does it because he'd rather hang out with God, and we'll see how he does it. Now, verses 1 through 4 we covered last time, but let's read them again. Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him, to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Chapter 17, Abram's name will be changed by God to Abraham. In the meantime... I'm reading what the text says, but we're calling him Abraham. Now, we covered these first four verses. The backslider was back. He was back in the land. He was back at Bethel. He was back to worshiping God at the altar. And we talked a little bit last week about the fact that if you've backslidden or when you find yourself backslidden, just get back to walking with the Lord. He will meet you at that place of repentance. Now, verse 5. Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Lot is Abraham's nephew. Uh, His father had died, and it seems that Abraham was a sort of guardian to him. Uh, Verse 6, Now the land was not able to support them, that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. This is what I like to call a high-class problem. They're too rich for the land to support them. Wow. Don't you have a real heart for that? 
I mean, imagine people come in, maybe you're a Christian counselor, people say, hey, I, we need you to, you know, we need you to settle a dispute, and you sit down, and you, you've got the Kleenex ready, and you think something, and they say, well, what's your problem? We're too rich to, to live together anymore. We don't know what to do with all of our money and possessions. Oh, you poor soul. Wow, that's, man, I, I'm heartbroken. Give me a few minutes to, you know, collect my thoughts here while you do this. You know, and uh, it's a high-class problem. However, it was a spiritual problem. We learn that at the end of the verse because it says the Canaanites and the Perizzites were in the land. And here's what was happening. These pagan, heathen people were watching Abraham and Lot. Abraham and Lot were the guys representing to them the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth. If Abraham and Lot had strife and it went unresolved, well, then maybe their God wasn't so powerful after all. If Abraham and Lot couldn't solve their problems, what good does it do to follow their God? Verse 8, so Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. And so Abraham understood this problem. He said, we're brothers. Um, he meant it in a familial sense, but there's a sense in which in the Lord they were brothers as well. The Canaanites, the Perizzites are watching. We need to solve this in a way that honors God so that we don't uh, default his testimony. There's always something greater going on, uh, some spiritual impact in your difficulties. And we should think of our testimony and we should subordinate our will to that which will bring glory to God. And so when you're in a dispute, especially with another Christian, take a moment and say, what does this look like to the world that's watching? Because I declare, as I walk with Jesus Christ, that that makes a difference. That, that knowing God and having Him indwelling me makes a profound difference in how I approach life and how I live and all of this. And if I have the same strife with a brother in Christ that any other person might have in the world, and if I can't resolve it in a godly manner, then I am doing despite to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Paul the Apostle goes so far in the New Testament book of Corinthians that says if your brother is going to sue you in open court, let him, be, let him defraud you, give him what he wants so that you don't go before the pagan judge and bring disrespect to the name of the Lord. Now, you'll have to apply that in your own personal situation, obviously, but it's a very serious thing, this testimony that we have that I'm a Christian and it makes a difference. The living God lives in me. And so people say, okay, so what difference does that make? Well, I'm going to heaven, and you're not. All right, that's pretty big, but what about on the small level, about how you treat your children and your wife, and how you approach your business, and how you get along with other people in the church? Does it have any effect there? Because if it can't affect you in small things, how can I trust you that it's, you know, you're telling me I'm going to die and go to heaven, that's big. I don't see any difference in your life. And so Abraham was on top of this. He said, Lot, we have got to solve this. It's a high-class problem, but it is a problem. And we're going to have to do this right. Verse 9, The whole land is before you. Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. When I read this verse this week, the word that came to my mind was magnanimous. Abraham was the uncle. Lot was his nephew. And especially in that kind of an ancient tribal culture, I mean, Abraham was just in charge. He was the man at the top. He could have told Lot what to do. And in most scenarios, you would guess that Abraham would just say, hey, there's strife about the land. I'm taking that land. You're taking that land. 
That's just the way it is. Why did Abraham let Lot choose? Well, there are at least two reasons I could uh, come up with. One, it's a way of letting God choose for him. He would leave it up to Lot and thereby leave it in God's hands. If Abraham chose for himself, you know, he's choosing for himself. But he says, if I'll let Lot choose, that way, whatever choice that's made, I'm actually trusting the Lord to oversee that. Second, Abraham gave Lot an opportunity to choose for himself whether he would pursue a spiritual path or a carnal one. The time came for Lot and Abraham to be separated. And Abraham said, I could choose for Lot to give him a head start, to give him a better you know, uh, spiritual plot, but it's time for him to decide on his own if he's going to go towards the Lord or towards the world. You know, at some point, a person must choose for themselves. Uh, you can only choose so much for them, and then after that, they make their own decisions. Now, Lot is going to choose for himself the better grazing land. Seems like the right choice if you're a farmer or a herdsman, but we're going to find out that it was the worst choice he could possibly make. We're going to return and talk about that in a moment, but for now, let's stick with Abraham and see the results of his letting God choose for him. Verse 14, we pick up the story. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. All the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. Would you rather have a season or two of good grazing land, or would you rather have the promise of an everlasting spiritual inheritance for you and your descendants forever? Well, when you put it that way, letting God make the choice seems a lot better. At the same time, you need to understand that when you let God choose, you might end up in circumstances that seem foolish from the world's point of view or difficult even from your point of view. I mean, think about this for a Just forget the fact that you know the outcome of this story and you know who Abraham is and you know how exalted he is and all of that. And just down to the level of, there's two guys and there's good grazing land and there's bad grazing land and you're the guy that's in charge of making that decision. And you look out at the situation and people are watching you, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and you've got all this pressure from herdsmen and all this stuff and you look at that and you say, I'm going to take the more difficult grazing land. Why? I mean, initially the Canaanites and the Perizzites are going to think you're some kind of a moron. Because that's what people always think when you make decisions that don't make logical, natural, material sense. Why would you do that? When you don't, why would you take something less when something more is there? Why would you jeopardize things? Why would you risk things? But as the story unfolds, and they start to realize that, you know, having a relationship with this living God, it's, there's something about it that we don't understand. We thought that that was a silly choice, a foolish choice, but a few years later we see where Lot is living and we see how Abraham is living and we think maybe there was some wisdom there, some wisdom from above. Maybe there is something in following this God. And so, you know, I think we talked about this every week with Abraham and we will probably every week subsequently. There are going to come times in your life when there are decisions to be made and you're going to, if you're following the Lord, you're not going to make the decision that seems right to everybody. It's not going to be the decision that ta- that's easier and more, uh, 
you know, prosperous for you. It's going to be a path that God has chosen for you. But He's promised to walk with you there and to draw close to you. And you're going to learn things about Him that you couldn't learn on the more material path. The fellowship with God you gain becomes your reward. His whisper to your heart about the heavenly inheritance awaiting you becomes priceless. Verse 16, he says, I'll make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. This is a pretty big promise to an old guy who had no kids and didn't own anything. It looks beyond Isaac and the children of Israel to the spiritual children of God. All those like you and I who are Christians who would believe God and to whom he would account it for righteousness and justify them. Now, this was enrapturing, meaning it moved Abraham to a delight without measure. In a culture in which land holdings and offspring were how you measured wealth and success, to be promised land in every direction as far as you could see, and more descendants than could even begin to ever be numbered, this is the bomb. I mean, nobody's on board with you. I mean, here's a guy over here, he owns five acres, 20 acres, 100 acres, 1,000 acres. Here's a guy with 15 children, 25 children, 35 children, and God says, hey, everywhere you look, that's your land. The dust of the ground, if, I, if anyone could number that, the Lord, of course, can. He goes, but if any man could number that, your descendants are going to be more than that. And Abraham is sitting there thinking, man, I'm, I'm, I'm the guy. God loves me so much, He's given me more than I could ever hope or dream for. Now, at the same time, this was all by faith, wasn't it? Because Abraham never really owned anything but a funeral plot in the land, and he didn't see these descendants in his lifetime. He saw them by faith. But it was enough for him. He believed God in a profound way, and he thought, okay, God, whenever you want to do that, I'm ready. In the meantime, you and I are going to have a friendship. We're going to have a relationship. We're going to talk to each other like almost no one else in the Bible. And God's going to turn around later as we've talked about the first couple of studies and say, Abraham was my friend. He was a friend of God. He calls him his best friend forever in one place. And so you see what happened. It was time to separate. Time to separate from Lot, time to separate from the world. Abraham's understanding of being separated was to let God choose for him. The result was a more difficult path in the world for sure, but an enrapturing, enthralling revelation of God. Separation isn't some monastic torture to be endured. It is a spiritual delight to be enjoyed. I have to tell you, maybe it's because I had a Roman Catholic upbringing, but any time I read about separation or the doctrine of separation, or being separate, or being holy, a shudder comes through my body about things that I can't do. I think, oh, okay, I might as well go to a monastery and beat myself with cords, you know, and, then, and not speak, or whatever it is. That's the idea, I think, that most of us have about what it means to be separated. We keep withdrawing and pulling back until we have no habits, no hobbies. We live in our mind in some kind of weird meditation all the time. Abraham was told to separate, and he says, okay, well, God, you choose. You tell me what to do. I'll, I'll walk with you. You know, if Lot wants to go to the right, I'll go to the left. If he wants to go to the left, I'll go to the right. None of it matters to me as long as you and I are together. It's a very different way of looking at biblical separation. 
Verse 17, Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. This wasn't something Abraham got up and did all at once. It wasn't his final walkthrough before the deal closed escrow. It was God's way of telling Abraham that wherever he went in the land, wherever he found himself, God was with him to remind him of the spiritual promises that he'd made. Now, it's interesting. I was thinking about Abraham. You and I are promised that one day we will be resurrected or raptured, we'll be in heaven with the Lord, and from there we're going to return with the Lord and we're going to rule and reign with Him over the earth for a thousand years. In light of what's sure in the future, that I will rule and reign with the Lord for a thousand years, there's a sense in which everywhere I walk, everywhere you walk as a Christian, It belongs to you. You own that because you're going to rule in one sense one day. I think I'm going to rule probably in Riverdale because of all the jokes I made. So I'm going to start making jokes about more like Anaheim because that's where I'd really like to rule. But anyway, uh, so you won't get them, but that's the way it's going to be. But so you get the idea. God has promised me in the future, and you, if you're a Christian, you're going to rule the earth with Him. And so, wherever I'm standing, there's a sense that in the future, I'm going to rule this with Christ in humility. And so, I guess, I'm like Abraham, by faith I receive that right now. So, what difference does that make? How does that affect us? Well, it might make me think more like Philip in the New Testament. One of my all-time favorite stories, Philip in the New Testament, God tells him to go and sit on the desert road and just wait. And so Philip goes. I don't know what they carried with him in those days. Probably, you know, a little knapsack or whatever. He's sitting on the desert road all by himself. Looks like a a hobo or a bum or a transient. He's just hanging out there. And then all of a sudden, here comes this caravan. It's the Ethiopian eunuch, the treasurer of Ethiopia. And he's cruising by in all his pomp and circumstance. And the Holy Spirit begins to minister to Philip and he says, go and attach yourself to that caravan. And as he's walking along, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading from the scroll of Isaiah and he doesn't understand what he's reading. And Philip, with the boldness of the Spirit, he says, do you understand who you're talking about or what you're reading? And the guy says, how would I know what I'm talking Next thing you know, he's up in the caravan with him. He's leading him to faith in Jesus Christ. They're getting baptized He's baptizing the guy. They come up out of the water and Philip is raptured somewhere else, leaving the eunuch to go to Ethiopia and share Christ with the Ethiopians. Years later, you find a thriving church in Ethiopia. It's fantastic. You know why? Because Philip ruled that road. You and I wouldn't see it that way. He's just some guy sitting by the side of the road. He doesn't own it. He doesn't have a deed to it. Nothing's happening. In fact, he's a bum. He's a transient. Here comes the real man of power, the treasurer. But here's a guy that has the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he believes that the Lord is working in his life. And when God tells him to do something, he rules that moment. He owns that moment. It belongs to him and to God. And together they minister for the Lord. And this, this is an Abraham. And we're all called to be that, maybe all the time, but certainly some of the time. And so when I think, Lord, you know, one day I'm going to rule and reign with you, so I guess I do right now in a spiritual sense. I don't have to own the ground I'm standing on to rule the ground I'm standing on in a spiritual sense. It's profound. And so you see this idea of being a monk locked away in some monastery, away from non-believers, it's the exact opposite of biblical separation. 
Verse 18, Then Abram moved his tent, went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, Hebron rather, and built an altar there to the Lord. One of the meanings of Mamre is richness, and Hebron means communion or fellowship. And so Abraham was rich in his communion and fellowship with God, and that's where we want to uh, count our wealth. Separation isn't me making a list of don'ts. Neither is it me insisting I can take my Christianity right to the limit, to the edge of what might be considered sin to some people. Separation, according to Abraham, the friend of God, is letting God choose for me. It's listening to the still, small voice of God, the Holy Spirit, telling me what will tend to increase my fellowship with God versus what will interfere with it. On a very simple level, I think we look at the story of Abraham and Lot and God is saying, Abraham, if you choose, if you end up with this more difficult land, it's going to enhance our fellowship. You're going to have to depend on me more. We'll walk together more. If you head over in the direction that Lot wants to go, you're going to start depending on the world and becoming more worldly. And when you put it like that, you think, well, I really do. I I mean, I really do want to know the Lord on a deeper level, in, in a better way. And so I can see that that's the better choice and I just let God make it for me. I will say that the more I listen and let God choose, the less the world, uh, the less like the world I will look and the less I will like the things of the world. Or to put it the opposite way, if I'm looking and acting worldly, then I'm not really listening to the Lord and letting him choose for me. But the bottom line again, separation isn't a list of don'ts. It's letting God make my choices for me. Certainly the big choices, but even little choices. And what I mean by that is cultivating that personal relationship that we have with God so that we hear the promptings of the Spirit, the influencing of the Spirit, so that I don't have to do any research. You know, I don't have to get online and say, is it okay for a Christian to fill in the blank? I already know if it's okay for me. Because God and I talk about that and, and he's able to say, yeah, well, yeah, Gene, you can do that. That'd be great. We can have fellowship while you're doing that. In fact, it'll enhance our fellowship. We'll walk together in that. Or he says, well, you know, yeah, you can do that, but I don't see how it's going to really help our walk. It's going to be a big distraction for you. It's going to, you know, take over your life in this one area. And, it, you know, have at it if you want. You have the liberty to do it. And I'd rather be the kind of person that says, well, no, Lord, I, I don't want to do that, Lord, because I, I really just want to be with you. I want to spend time with you. And I think we just need to cultivate that voice. If God isn't making my choices, then I am. And that is exampled for us by Lot. And it's a bad example. Verses 10 through 13. The place to start talking about Lot is really in the New Testament. The Apostle Peter gives this commentary about him and it's very insightful. It's in 2 Peter 2, verses 7 and 8. God delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked... For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Now you've noted as I read it, Peter called Lot righteous no less than three times. That means he was a saved individual. Perhaps God the Holy Spirit knew that the emphasis would be necessary to convince you and I that Lot really was a child of God. There is very little in his behavior to suggest that he believed in the Lord. Nevertheless, we must accept God's testimony. God was, or Lot, excuse me, was declared righteous by God. If you look at Lot's conduct and then listen to Peter's commentary, you'd have to conclude that it's possible for a Christian to be carnal. 
Carnal is a word that describes a Christian who sets their mind on the things of the world. In the context of our theme, Lot is the Christian who chooses for him or herself rather than letting God choose for them. And so verse 10, Lot lifted his eyes and he saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go towards Zoar. Lot was concerned mostly about water. Now, you can't blame him, can you? He was a herdsman. They needed water. But you see the result of his choice. It was a poor choice. Now, in the New Testament, water becomes a symbol of the abundant spiritual provision of God to His faithful children as they walk with Him in obedience. It's a picture of the outflow of the Holy Spirit of God from heaven to you and through you to others. Lot preferred water that leaves you thirsting for more rather than the spiritual water that flows from you to others. You can have all this world's goods, and sometimes I think I'd like to, just once, you know, but that's a, that's a Solomon kind of a thing where Solomon said, let me, I want everything, I want to experience everything that the world has to offer in every dimension to see if I can find satisfaction in that. And you think, oh, okay, I'd like to try that too. But we don't listen, learn from Solomon. Solomon said, in the end, it was all vanity, it was all vexation of spirit. And he found that only in his relationship with God could he fill what was in his heart. And so Lot looked out and he thought, I need water for my herds and my flock. I don't want to struggle. I want to, I want to get up every morning and just cruise through my situation and have this world's good. But Peter lets us know with the insight of the Spirit that every day Lot's righteous soul was vexed. He was troubled. He just couldn't fill that emptiness in his heart with the things of the world. Abraham could and did. Lot compared Egypt to Eden. What a joke. Eden had been Eden because of fellowship with God, not because of its water and vegetation. Lot thought of fellowship in terms of the immediate material blessings that he could get. Then Lot chose for himself, verse 11, all the plains of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Lot could have deferred to Abraham. He could have prayed about it and let God choose for him. Instead, he chose for himself. I can only wonder how many times I have at a spiritual juncture chosen for myself based on what appeared to be the best from a physical and material mindset. It's that yellow pad thing I keep referring to, whether anybody actually still does this or not, where you're faced with some kind of a decision and you list the pros and the cons. And generally speaking, you go with the side that has uh, you know, the, the greatest weight. We have to throw all of that out when you're a Christian. You can still do that, that's fine. But in the end, you have to say, all right, Lord, I, I, I just need to hear from you. Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to be doing? Is this the life that you have for me? Uh, and, and the Lord will, you know, we believe that the Lord speaks. He speaks through His Word. He speaks through His people. There's the still, small voice of the Spirit. There are impressions. We believe in the gift of prophecy and the visions and dreams and all of these things. And all of these things taken together can give you God's wisdom and His direction and sometimes it's not going to be what you and I would choose. I could joke with you and tell you that Hanford was not my choice. I have in the past. You know what? I love Hanford. This is the greatest place in the world as far as I'm concerned. Well, Anaheim. And then Hanford. (laughs) 
But I don't know that I'd want to live in Anaheim unless I could live in Walt Disney's apartment at Disneyland. But anyway, uh, you know, I mean, Hanford was not on our radar at all. But God led us here through circumstances, through visions, and uh, through the Word of God. Uh, and looking back, I can say that it was definitely God's plan for our life. And, you know, nobody looks at a map and says, Hanford. I mean, if you're, a, if you're an assistant pastor at a Calvary Chapel in San Bernardino in Southern California and you're looking to go someplace, you're thinking, Washington, Oregon, Montana. That's where everybody here wants to go, right? Montana. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Nobody looks at the map and says, Gila Bend. Well, maybe you do. I don't know. But, uh, you know, so you don't look at the map. I didn't even know where Hanford was. No one knew where Hanford was. No one still knows where Hanford is. People say, we're from Hanford. Where's that? I go, you know, there's a naval state. Oh, yeah, Lemoore. Oh, that's right. I lived there. And they still don't know that they were there. It's crazy. You know how embarrassing it is to tell people you live between Bakersfield and Fresno? You're not even Fresno. You're not even Bakersfield. You live somewhere in between Bakersfield and Fresno where places like Riverdale and Pixley are. So nobody chooses that. That's a God choice. God looks at a map and He says, this is where you're going. This is where you'll raise your family. This is where the church will be that you're, you'll pastor. And you think, okay, all right. Not my choice. And then I, I've shared with you over the years, I don't mind telling you this, there have been times I've done everything I could to get out of here. In the first ten years... One of these days when, you know, we get a chance, uh, I'll tell you some stories that will blow your mind about the first 10 years that we were here. It's crazy, the stuff that went on. It was like spiritual Armageddon. It was crazy. I mean, you know, I I just, I didn't know people could act that way. Uh, And it's like, you know, Lord, you've got to get me out of here. I had three or four different master plans for getting out of Hanford and they all foiled you know I couldn't I couldn't get out of here no matter how hard I tried and so it's just it's the Lord and the Lord will show you and he will lead you and in the end it's better than what you had in mind by the way if God chooses for you to live in some Sodom and Gomorrah that's different he will be with you there Lot made a bad choice moving towards Sodom Daniel didn't have a choice, did he? Nebuchadnezzar's men came in and they said, you, 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 and you, you're coming to Babylon. You're going to be in the king's court. We're going to turn you into sorcerers. You're going to eat food that is not part of your diet, non-kosher foods and all that. God was with Daniel. That was not Daniel's choice, but it still was God's choice. So if, you, if you're led to some place like that, God will be with you. But in Lot's case, he chose it for all the wrong reasons. Verse 12, Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. The men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Just for emphasis, the Holy Spirit lets us know that Sodom was no place for a believer to be anywhere near. It wasn't, you didn't want to live near it, certainly you didn't want to live in it, you didn't want a vacation there. It was bad. Had Lot said from the get-go, I'm moving to Sodom. Well then, that, that's a big statement. Then Abraham's going to say, hey, You can't do that. That's weird. That's wicked. But what we do sometimes is we deceive ourselves and we head back to the world in stages. 
First, Lot's going to look longingly at the plains before Sodom. Then he'll pitch his tent as far as Sodom. In chapter 14, he's living in Sodom. By chapter 19, you find out he's one of the city councilmen of Sodom. And so one step at a time, one small step at a time, he goes from being Lot with Abraham, looking like he's walking with the Lord, to being completely immersed in the world. Ask yourself, am I on a course that is more worldly or more otherworldly? It's pretty easy in one sense to look back on life and see if I'm becoming more separated from the world or more worldly. To see if I'm really closer to God, really a better friend to Him than I was previously. I'm tracking one way or the other. The world around us is like Sodom and Gomorrah and we are called to live in it. But we don't have to be like Lot. We can be Abrahams. We can enjoy rather than simply endure. I'm tempted to say the choice is yours. You know, usually there's a choice to make. But in this sense, it's really a matter of whether you will let God choose for you or not. And so the, the, you know, the solve today is the choice is God's. As long as you're letting God choose for you, you're going to be separated from the world the way God wants you to be. You're going to have all the do's that God wants for you and all the don'ts that God wants for you. They're not going to match up with other people's do's and don'ts because that's their business. And you're not worried about them. You're just concerned about drawing close yourself. And this idea of letting God choose, it's a little bit scary, uh, I admit. But His choices are always better. The other day we surprised my granddaughter, CJ, uh, by taking her to Disneyland. She didn't know anything about it. And uh, we decided we couldn't get all the way down there without her figuring something out, so we were just going to tell her you know, before we left. So Sunday after church, she came home with us, and we asked her if she wanted to do something really just super special, you know, just trying to set her up. And she goes, can we go swimming? Now, swimming at our house is really super special. That's true, you know, underwater cameras and all kinds of fun stuff that we do with her. But... I was foiled, and so I thought, okay, I have to approach this from another angle. And so I said, well, honey, if you could go anywhere in the world right now to the most fun place you can think of, what would you want to do? And she looked at me uh, just quizzically, and she goes, can we play some games? (laughs) Now, games at our house are pretty cool, too. You know, Candyland, whew, man. (laughs) At the end, when you're, you know, if you pick one of those cards and have to go all the way back to, whew, it's rough. Finally, we just had to tell her that we were going to go to Disneyland. It was one of those, you know, moments. It was exciting. And then when we got there, we surprised her again uh, because her mom and dad had already, they were already down there and she didn't know they were going to be there. And so there they were standing by Goofy, uh, you know, and so, so the whole thing was just super fun. Her choices were okay. She wanted to go swimming. She wanted to play games with her Papa and Coco. That was sweet. We wanted to take her to Disneyland. So our choices, I would say, on a quantum level, level, are better. God's choices for you are like that. But they are spiritual in nature. And that's where we have problems. We think carnally, we think materially, we think about this world too much. God says, let me choose for you. 
Sure, it's going to be more difficult. You're not going to always be, you know, the, the guy that, that has the best or the greatest or the number one. Maybe sometimes you will, maybe some, but let me choose because in the end, when you look back over your life, which is all that you and I want to do is get to that place where we're with the Lord looking back over our lives you're going to see that these were the choices that brought you to the place that you're at, closer to me, in fellowship with me, being rewarded, and now you're going to go back and you and I are going to rule all those places, literally, that I told you to rule figuratively and spiritually. Amen? Let's pray.